Welcome to The Brand Collective, a podcast about our favorite brands, featuring stories from the marketers and creatives behind them. I'm your host, Nick Ross. With me, your co-host, Mackenzie Koss. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Brand Collective podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Carrie Sanderson, who's held roles such as the group marketing manager at Coca-Cola, the brand manager at Starbucks, and most recently, the chief marketing officer at Typeform. Welcome on, Carrie. We're so excited to have you. Hi, thank you. Very happy to be here. Yeah, you have worked on some iconic brands. Uh, yes. Do you mind sharing a little bit about those experiences and how that influences your approach to marketing today? Yeah, I mean, I think both of those brands, you know, people look at them and say, you know, how do I get there? And and what? how can I get my brand to have that level of, of recognition? And, and keep in mind, especially for Coca-Cola, it's over a hundred year old company. So there is something to the adage of marketers, you know, frequency, <laughs> region frequency and repetition is important. But about the brands themselves, one of the things that both of them do, and I'll, I'll kind of give examples for each one of them, like Coca-Cola, for instance, like their brand architecture has just as much time spent on the emotional side of the brand as it does on the what do you say, you know the, the product feature functionality side right so what are the intrinsic benefits that you get in the in extrinsic ones yes it's great taste it quenches my thirst that has that you know taste that goes really well with food i can find it wherever i want it's predictable it's always the same they have a lot of different flavors and combinations those are you know sort of the product functionality which i think right now a lot of brands are are still trying to sort out how to communicate that but what really good brands do is they also think about the emotional functionality. Like So the brand architectures of all the brands in the Coca-Cola family have a lot of emotional you know, insight into them. How do you want someone to feel? And, and there's a big bit on the emotional on the Coca-Cola side about nostalgia and that feeling of, you know, you want to keep somebody as a brand customer for life. You don't want them switching away from Coca-Cola to a competitive brand. So you do that by creating an emotional you know, trigger of like, oh, I had a Coke and it was at that one family reunion, or it was while well, I watched this movie Titanic for the first time, or, you know, any of the, I was at a sporting event. So it's a really deliberate um, part of, of how they want to show up in the world, how they want to create an experience is paying attention to the emotional reaction of the customer that you want them to have that has a positive association. And then looking out in the world and saying, where, where can we do that? Where might that be? And and it's it, that's pretty cool. And then for Starbucks, I think, you know, um, when, when we were kind of prepping for this call, we, I think we talked about like Starbucks being this very um, strong brand uh, because they broke through. They were the first to the market, which is always really important on that, you know, coffee outside the home or a diner or a restaurant. But there's a consistency of experience, right? And so you see people when you travel around the world who walk into a Starbucks and they have all these other, you know, they'll they'll choose a Starbucks um, because because it's they know that they're going to get a consistency, a quality has a little bit of that like taste of home, maybe if they're in a in a strange place or whatever. And it's true across the co country. You know, if I'm in a, running through an airport and I want coffee, I want to know it's going to be good, um, especially if I'm spending as much as I am. So there's <laughs> there's um, an element of that emotion, and the emotion I would say is different from Coca Cola is more around this experience, right, that you're having, um, this consistency, this, I know what I'm going to get, and it's high quality, and it's a familiarity, and and the emotion that that evokes that that causes people to stand in front of two coffee shops and say, I I'm going there, because I know what I'm going to get, even if the other one may have a better product, right, there's an emotional 
um, connection there. And really strong brands have that. And they that emotion builds trust, that emotion builds loyalty. And uh, yeah, that those are two really strong, formative brand building part of my career that that I hold on to that. Like, where is the emotion in this? What is somebody getting emotionally from from this product and this brand? That, and how can we deliberately emphasize that? And great uh, caffeinated drinks. Well, yeah. <laughs> Caffeine in common. That's true. Yes. Exactly. Um, yes. Can we shift a little bit? You have an expertise in the operations behind marketing. Mm-hmm. Do you mind talking about your experience with that and how that complements uh, the creative side that's sort of inherent to marketing? I think touch. You know, going back to what I was just saying too. There, there's an element of when I think operations, I think foundations first. So. Um, the way to build a strong brand is to have everybody on the same page, whether it's your employees, people talking to customers, you know, what you share, share digitally, partners you may with may work with to get out in the market and to serve customers. And if you haven't articulated, like written it down and showed people this is how we express ourselves as a brand, you by nature are going to get inconsistency. Because even when you do that, there's still room open for interpretation. And so Part of the, the the foundation of the operational mindset that I have is very much around documenting, um, you know, the messaging, the the visual guide, you know, and then spending a lot of time on, you know, we're moving from this to that or this, not that, like being very specific with the examples and really sharing with anyone. You know, obviously the marketing team needs to know that because they're putting out a lot of content, um, but also other folks in the company need to understand, you know, what kind of experience to deliver a community manager or somebody answering the phone. Um, you know, if you're showing up an event, how does that feel? Is that part of your brand? And then giving examples. So in, and um, in the past, I've done also where. And then you do a roadshow around the company once you have those foundations in place and you meet with everybody, with every team and say, what does brand mean for you? Finance or, you know, it doesn't matter, like facilities, you know, how does the building show up? Um, how do you, how do people show up when they come to your office? Although that doesn't happen that much anymore, but, but still, um, I think it's, it's, um, it, it creates this consistency of communication that makes that that's the foundation for it. And then from there, the operations of it is really like, how do you get it to market? So how do you create content that aligns? But without those foundations, without writing it down and documenting it, a really strong architecture, a strong brand book, an experiential book, it makes it hard for people to understand because everybody has a different idea of what brand is. It's so poignant and so clear with brands that are that are immediately recognizable, especially the brands that you mentioned earlier. Um, You've also worked in B2B brands, which I think... A lot of people associate emotions with B2C brands because it's, you know, about your human experience and how that product enhances that experience. Uh, And I don't know if a lot of people associate uh, that same level of like emotional feeling with B2B, with, you know, companies that are marketed specifically to be used by other companies. Um, Do you have a take on that? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think it's it's interesting is is behind the B is, a, is, a, is an H, right? It's a human. And I know a lot of people talk about this. You're not doing building to building marketing. Yeah. You're doing human marketing, human to human marketing. And whether it's the IT person who's trying to decide if they want to add something new to their tech stack or it's the CFO who's like, okay, how, how you know, do I really want to pay for this? Or the end user who says, oh, great, here's another kind of software tool that I have to use. You know, what, you know, what's this going to do for me? 
when you when you think about all those different stakeholders and constituents as a marketer, you have to really think about like what value do they place on this? What's in it for them? Like to stop talking about yourself, start talking about what about them and and how this is going to make their life easier or hit their goals. And then and then, you know, showcase that visually, showcase that, you know, hit the emotions and um, one great example, um, when I worked at Smartsheet, uh, who is a parent company of Brandfolder, um, but they, when I worked at Smartsheet, like we had, when we'd have our annual Engage event and people who'd been Smartsheet users for a long time would come up and say like, this changed my life. Like being able to effectively manage my projects allowed me to save hours a day that I could spend with my family. I could go home on time. You know, when you can hit those kind of, and it, or it got me promoted. Like I got promoted twice because of the work I was able to get done and I was able to actually finish the project on time and get everybody on the same page. And, and there's real human benefit to to product you just have to whatever you're marketing you know whether it's software or beverages or i've marketed pharmaceuticals i've marketed you know all kinds of different stuff paper products you know dixie cups and plates was my first marketing job um there's a benefit in there and and so the only way to find that is to spend time with customers find out find the people that love you great find the people that don't like you why did they switch away why did they not choose you you're going to learn as much or if not more from the folks who didn't choose you about about your product and what's good about it and what's not. Yeah, there's inherently room for improvement in any yeah. product. I think that's yeah. so important. Oh, yeah. And I think that sentiment has been echoed a few times by um, some very uh, sage voices, uh, you being one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Especially right now in the in this world of influencers and TikTok and all those things, it's, it's there's an analogy that I'll share from when I worked at Coca Cola. I I had spent a significant part of my time working in what we called sponsorship marketing. So people would come and say, "Hey, pay us X amount of dollars. You can sponsor my you know concert or stadium or you know fill in the blank with Coca Cola. It was anything you could imagine because people would say, hey, you want to get more brand awareness? I'm like, nope, everybody knows who we are. Tell me about the experience. And and the person at the headquarters who ran that part would say, listen, th that's just you're just buying the toy at that point, right? Like if you, you know, you have the sponsorship for NASCAR or you're going to sponsor this walk for charity or you're going to, you know, sponsor the House of Blues venues. The initial investment, first, you should make sure it matches your brand. But secondly, um, that's just the first investment. For every dollar you spend on that, you, you probably are going to have to spend at least another dollar on what we called activating that brand, activating that asset. So I spent a lot of time on asset activation. And it's like putting the batteries in the toy, right? Like I bought myself this fancy little car, but without batteries, it's not going to go anywhere. And, and we thought about that a lot. And I had an opportunity to do that for ski resorts, for, you know, basketball and baseball stadiums, for, you know, movie theaters. And, and it really forces you as a marketer to think about, you know, how you're going to do that. And I think there's a big analogy right now to this idea of creators and influencers and how you as a brand and a product, when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I have a lot of followers. Do, do you want to get in on this goodness? And the temptation is like, ooh, instant, instant eyeballs, instant, et cetera. But if if there's not a clear connection on why your customers or why your brand is a good fit um, for that creator influencer, whatever you want to call it, or even that, you know, channel or sponsorship, think twice because 
you know, showing how that pays out, getting out of it what you wanted when you wanted it to will be extremely hard. Um, and and I've learned that the hard way. I've seen other people learn that the hard way. Um, but when the fit's right, it just naturally takes off and your customer's like, I get it. I know why you're doing this. And the same is true for what social channels you show up in. You know, should you be on TikTok? I don't know. I don't know your brand. But, you know, if you're not a heavily engaged, you know, video focus, like, like, like what's the personality of your brand? How might you show up? And if you don't have the resources to put into making that kind of content, you should you should think twice about it. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's such a, it's a point of reflection on a time when I feel like that creator economy has changed uh, the whole model, right? Because it's created this, mm-hmm. um, we have the eyeballs, you want to join us rather than, yes. you know, like the brand that has the eyeballs, like be in our mm-hmm. ad, you know, it's almost like it's flipped the relationship with talent in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you don't know what's going to take off. And you also put your brand at risk. Anytime yeah. that you give someone else the power over your brand, and you know, you, we can all think of probably examples in this too, where um, there's been some kind of controversy, and you are you're linked with them in the good, and you're linked with them in the bad, and so be ready for that. You know, be ready for when things um, may go sideways because they always will, and how you might handle it. But it's exciting. I mean, it's an exciting time to do that kind of work. But it it definitely don't underestimate the investment, the um, lining up those architectures, like is what that person or what that venue or whatever stand for, the kind of people show up, the, the way they behave, doesn't have to all match, right? But right. are there key pieces of your share your your tone of voice or your visual design or your experience that you're putting together that you're like, I see where these match and I'm going to lean in on those things. I'm going to let somebody else do the other part, you know? Um, and, and that's a, it's, I think that every marketer needs to, you know, at least think through, through that in this environment, either who they go seek or if somebody comes to them, it makes it easy to say no, if you know what you stand for. And, and when the right opportunity comes along, it makes it easy to say yes and to sell it. Yeah. Yeah. As someone who's been a marketing leader for decades, can you kind of reflect on the most significant changes to the brand way brands operate or the way you operate within brands now? Yeah, I mean, it's there's some serious gifts out there right now if you're a marketer in the sense that, that you do have the opportunity to market almost individually now, right? The digital channels let you um, find out, find people, you know, you can know by what channel they're in, what kind of creative or what kind of messaging may work or when the right time is. You know, um, when I first started marketing, it was very mass market. It was very like, let's come up with a a messaging, a creative that, you know, you'd push it out. Literally, it was a reach and frequency game. But, you know, by nature, it wouldn't resonate with a lot of people that saw it because, you know, you're kind of shooting for the middle or shooting for the average or the target. And as the digital um, worlds have opened up, it's given a chance to do things, you know, like at LinkedIn, you can target titles or there's so much more you can do. You can associate with other products and partners. So that's been really positive. I think the the um, the more challenging part and where you have to, as a marketer, adapt and be more agile is the entire world now believes that that as a customer that you're that everybody's open for feedback, right? Through social channels, through you know your website, you know feedback forms, et cetera. So 
the the brand needs to be a more of a living thing versus we're doing a brand plan this year. We're going to put it down on paper. We're going to build all this stuff. We're going to ship it out, see how it lands. And next year we'll, we'll look at it again. Getting those foundations right is important, but being open to them evolving in positive directions, evolving in a, um, in a, in a more productive or, or tightened way with your target audience, you get that through the gift of feedback. So people will, if you've built that trust, they'll tell you what you're doing wrong or what what you can do more of that they love. And then you need to be ready to adapt because if if you're opening yourself to that feedback by even having those channels and you're not responding to it, someone else will. So I think that those are some of the big adaptations. Um, the other one you already alluded to, Nick, which is how there's a lot of B2C mindset and approach and um, this idea of branding that really is um, necessary in B2B or B2B2C, depending upon, you know, how, how you want to look at a product or a category. It's interesting. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. it almost feels like B2C, you can take so many risks and have so much fun and, and be like yeah. the life of the party. And then you look on LinkedIn and like B2B brands advertise in such a similar way. Like everybody is so like ready to do good business with us, like tighten up your tie. Like let's have a yeah. good time. <laughs> yeah. Know, like, yes. Yes. Um, I mean, it's, it's partly, um, and this is one thing I would say that has changed too is, or that's changed by, I think it's going to be changing back for the better. Um, and I'm an engineer education by education and a statistician. So I love numbers, but I think that especially on the B2B side, we've AB tested ourselves into a bit of a hole. Um, if you don't have the, you know, 95% confidence interval statistics test that this thing is doing, but sometimes you look at that and say, that's great that that test won, but did it really? Like, what <laughs> what did it end up doing in that? End, right? Like, did, yeah, you may have won that that little experiment, but but those experiments in aggregate are the are the sum total of your brand and your customers and everything you're trying to put out there. So, with the you know changes that are coming and you know the the tightening of GDPR and all the ways that people can opt out, you know, you're you're really going to have to as marketers put try a little bit something different and test things and realize that not all, not everything that you do can be measured down to this nth degree. There's going to have to be some art to it, some instinct to it, some experience to it. And and you can try new and fun things, go for it. Right. Um, and, and it's hard because right now the market is tough in some industries and the pressure is on to deliver. Um, but I think now is when that actually matters most because you can differentiate yourself. You can try some new things and some channels and, and see what works. Um, but the over-reliance on that, that data, we don't do anything without looking at the spreadsheet. It's like get out of the spreadsheet, talk to some customers, try some of their ideas that they have, use that for your brand, to, for, for some of your activities. Um, and, and, you'll, you'll, you'll surprise people because no one else is doing it or not many brands are doing it. So just that alone, you'll get customers attention. Yeah. I love that. That's part of why I went into marketing in the first place is because I noticed that as an outsider. And I was like, I want in on that because I see what these brands are doing. And I think that is why I, me as a consumer, I'm participating. I'm buying or participating with them as a brand. Um, You find Mackenzie, like when you are, interacting with a brand like that, you know, if they mess up, 
which everybody will, you know, yeah, we're human, whether it's a, (laughs) you know, a a miscalculated social post, Mm -hmm. or you launch something new on your product that people are like, if you've done that, if you've taken their insight, if you've taken, you know, if you've you've created an emotional connection, them, they're more likely to forgive you, to trust you, to say, okay, we'll give you another try. Yeah. If you haven't invested in that relationship, if it's just been very transactional, they're, you know, they might just be like, well, I'll try this other one. I had a little question around um, the need for experimentation. And I like that you said, bring some art into it. Cause I think art is the humanity that's like sort of indefinable. Like it, it's not like you can look at a piece yeah. of art and be like, now, what's the spreadsheet behind this? Like, did this did this A/B yeah. test its way all the way to the Met? Um, yeah, right. <laughs> and I think that's wonderful. But early on, we talked about how uh, a consistent brand experience is so paramount to that loyalty and that love of that brand. And I wonder how you um, can talk about the you know the need for experimentation while maintaining the need for that consistent brand experience. Yeah, I mean, the brand guidelines are just that, they're guidelines or guardrails. You know, there's a lot of room to experiment and and sometimes asking customers for, you know, especially if somebody's known you, you know, known you for a while, been a customer for a while, what would you change about the experience? You know, they, they're going to tell you things that are still within the brand. So experimentation doesn't mean like, you know, Coca-Cola suddenly changes their core color to orange in the shape of their bottle. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it can be, it can be something else, you know, like who you partner with or, um, you know, it's just, it, it doesn't have to be experiment. Doesn't mean necessarily mean, mean like completely tangential to where you are, Right. but but a brand framework also shouldn't just be on a, on a set it and forget it, lather, rinse, repeat either, um, of, of how you show up in the world. But yeah, it's, uh, um, it's one of those, you know, it when you see it things and maybe after my long years of experience, it just comes natural to me, but it's, uh, you know, test in little channels. But again, if you're talking to customers along the way, it won't, it'll be more obvious. If you're sitting in your, you know, in your room or, you know, not, I say behind a desk, whatever, and trying to make things up without that input, it's, um, it's not going to work. Can you think of any examples that you've worked on where experimentation uh, led to success? Yeah, I, I can actually give you two, both of them for Starbucks. One of them is um, is the when I worked there, there, there was trying to figure out like like in in offices, you know, how do you bring Starbucks in for people that don't want to come out into the world? How do you bring that experience into the office, but still have the consistency, the quality of a Starbucks and kind of make it a little bit experiential? And, you know, what the, the thing about Starbucks is, is that fresh brewed cup of coffee, right? So we worked on this thing. It was called the iCup. Um, I got vetoed on the name, but still you would, it would be filled with Starbucks beans and you would press the button and it would grind the beans and then it would do up a pressurized French press and you'd end up with this amazing cup of coffee coming out of it. And, you know, it was, it was definitely out of the box. Like there were folks who, um, who were were thinking like, Hmm, is that really the Starbucks brand? But it actually was, by the, and it had to pass all the quality tests. Like there's master tasters at Starbucks that go through and they have to not, you can't tell the difference between that and something you'd make on a regular espresso machine, right? So we got it out and started launching it. It was amazing. And Aramark, all those big customers were like, you know, how many can we get? And it was the initial sort of precursor to now what most offices have, which is, you know, the coffee machine that grinds the beans. And of course there was, copycats but starbucks was still um a a pioneer in that 
and and the idea of that being on brand was how do you bring that brand experience into a very different environment than people coming to a Starbucks, but maintain elements of the brand around quality, around taste, around there's some cool experience of this handmade beverage for you at the same time, that consistency that we were talking about. That was a really cool one that I had a chance to work on and, and see go to market and have some fun. The other one on the opposite end was, um, you know, Starbucks also wanted to get into like restaurants, but you know, what kind of restaurants, you know, their brand is a higher end brand. And so we um, were looking at uh, fine dining and how could you create the Starbucks fine dining experience? So we worked with a restaurant in Seattle called Canlis, which is multiple James Beard award-winning, very known how to do that and worked with their you know, um, their staff to come up with a custom blend called Casa Cielo. And it was specifically made for fine dining, specifically made to be paired with food or dessert or that kind of thing. And it's it's now sold in stores. It's one of their most popular brands, but that's the that's the bean blend, the Starbucks blend that is sold to fine dining restaurants. So you can still like those are new channels. Like people think of Starbucks, they think of you know the drive-through and get your latte and all that. But there's extensions to the brand that that we're still very much about quality, about experience, um, that that you can really push in and expand on. So it's it's but having that anchor, like who is the right restaurant to partner with, or what is the right way to do this in an office? Th- those guidelines helped. Like it should be this, but not that. Um, so it's kind of fun. Yeah. It's, it makes me think awesome. of uh, like when you go to big events or when there's like, you know, large scale catering and there's a coffee experience and it is branded Starbucks. There's like a sigh of relief or something <laughs> like when you, yeah. when you go to it, it's not a scar- Starbucks experience, but there's some sort of, uh, you know, mechanism that's like, oh, this is probably yes. going to be better than, you know, the swill that maybe I would expect at a yeah. big function or something. Um, <laughs> well, that's also true. I mean, from a, um, you know, um, when you go, you know, for Coca-Cola, you know, like the experience in a restaurant from a fountain machine needs to be as high quality as what you, when you open up a bottle, right? Mm-hmm. How do they do that with filtration systems? And, you know, the, the Coca-Cola makes those machines. So they know, you know, it's, there's elements, there's a lot of operational elements, especially in the CPG world that, that you have to consider so that your brand shows up and your product shows up the way you want it to. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. For anyone who's trying to continue to learn and grow in our marketing and creative careers, what advice would you give? Yeah, I mean, I thought a little about this one. I mean, for me, I think my advice I can give is, you know, what worked for me, but just be a lifelong learner, right? Be curious, you know, to quote Ted Lasso. Um, And one of the things that I kind of did this just with my career, because I have worked in so many industries, you know, with beverages and paper products, and I had one consulting company and then into SaaS, et cetera, is either try to get some experience in other industries, because there's a lot you'll learn that you can then apply to wherever you go next. Um, uh, You know, either challenges that you've overcome, things that become a part of you are, or look outside of your industry. If, if you aren't working there, at least follow people who are influencers, you know, whether it's something you're interested in, you know, fashion or, you know, other types of products, but, but really think about that um, because it will, it will continually expand your thinking. It, it can get very insular. Um, if you just stick within your industry all the time, you're going to get um, probably a deep functional expertise, but coming up with those inspired ideas, those challenges, those experiments that you want to try, 
you know, you can find that inspiration from everywhere. Um, the other thing is I have not gotten to where I am in my career by myself. So as you move up and along and through your career, you're going to need a team to either work with or work for you. Um, and so work on your leadership skills, really take those seriously. It's not um, early on in my career. I had a lot of intuitive leadership skills, but leading marketers, especially a diverse array of marketers, you, know, you might have a performance marketer and a creative director and a comms person and a product marketer. Like those are all very different disciplines. So understanding what they do, understanding how to lead those kind of folks, even if you're not doing the work yourself is really important. So think about, you know, routines that you may have, things you need to develop and and learn what good looks like in those roles so that when you have to hi- find yourself having to hire for someone for a job that you've never done before, which will happen, especially as you reach, you know, VP, CMO levels, um, if you you've invest time in, in being a, a fantastic leader and ask for feedback, take that feedback to heart and work on it and your team will know and, and share that and they'll follow you. They'll follow you where you go next. Um, uh, yeah. And, and then those are probably the two big ones. I love that. That's so important. I feel like, and to be okay to pivot because I can remember I was not in tech before I joined brand folder. So I was very much like, what am I getting myself into? But it's been so rewarding and having such a stellar team, not only podcast wise, but outside of that, like our marketing team, that was that is like what drives me every single day. And I think that is something there's something to be said about that, like you said, with team and being able to challenge yourself every day. Yeah, I think the other thing, too, that you just sparked that comment um, is when you are working some, on something, even if you're not a leader, get feedback from people other than those directly around you. Right. Go over to the customer service person and say, hey, I'm getting ready to do this social post. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, you'll get a perspective from them that you won't get from the people around you who are looking at it from that one angle. And it's a chance to learn. It's a chance to build relationships um, and 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 see things from a different perspective, which will always make you a better marketer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely relate. I love uh, how you talked about learning to lead uh, with such a diverse group of marketers. Cause I think that uh, that's something that I've really come to appreciate is how uh, specific everybody in this sort of umbrella is, you know, like marketing is such a, you know, it's a broad spectrum of personalities that live under that umbrella. And I think, even yes. joining brand folder and now Smartsheet, it just feels like it's lucky to be able to see this kind of operation and really appreciate all the different personalities and all the different types of people that that are needed to make it function. Again, it comes with time and it's always shifting. You know, when I think about right now, like what's the big shift that's happening in marketing and everyone's talking about it, right? Which is the AI. And, and there's so much excitement about it. You know, it's like, how can you... Um, get better, more efficient. I look at it as an efficiency thing right now, frankly. Um, you know, if I think about how I might apply it to brand guidelines or share of, or, or um, tone of voice guidelines, things like that. But there's also danger there uh, because it draws from what's already out there. And if I think about things that are really important right now that people and people, customers care about, you know, diversity, equity, um, you know, the inclusive language, you know, if it's, um, there's already been a few tests that say right now that, you know, some of the things that are coming out of those do not meet, you know, those kind of those tests of inclusivity. So 
I mean, as marketers, when those new things come out, you you know, it's like, how do you take what you already know? How do you get the best of them? How do you make them work for you? Is uh, it's, it's, it's exciting. There's always something new that comes out that you can do that with. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, AI has come up an, a number of times already and it is uh, both mm-hmm. incredible and scary. Uh, and I <laughs> think that, yeah. uh, I think, John Oliver did a piece on how quickly some companies AI like ChatGPT Twitter account went like really dark and really scary <laughs> just based on yeah. the inputs that it was uh like modeling yeah. from. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. So yeah, there's yeah, some work there's to no, be there's done. No, there's no judgment there. There's no regulator on it, right? And it yeah. can go where you ask it to go. So, which can be kind of cool if you're experimenting with internally, like, oh, this is something we haven't thought about. What's some new ideas? But um, you know, as a marketer, and I'm I'm a little bit wired for you know seeing three or four steps ahead and like, well, that could go badly. So um, you know, thinking through that is is always interesting. Outside of work, what kinds of things keep you inspired personally? Yeah, I mean, for me, obviously, my family. Um, I have a 17-year-old and a 20, almost 21-year-old. Um, so one in college, one in high school. And and I always love to see the world through their eyes. Like, it's such a different world. Things have changed a lot. And and there's an incredible amount of opportunity. I love now that, that for them... You know, your career isn't the thing that you pick, you know, when you go to college and you have to do that thing. Right. So I'm inspired by seeing through their eyes what what how they think about the world and what they would like to do next. Um, the other thing, too, is is a travel. I love to travel and I'm a slow traveler. So I'm not one of those people. It's like 10 cities in 10 days. You know, I like to find a <laughs> city and stay there for 10 days. And part of why I love to do that is you get a chance to get to know people, hopefully get to know the locals a little bit, learn a little bit about the culture. And, and I always like to think about what, what can I take um, from that culture and that I love that feels right for me and, and, and use that myself. You know, um, Typeform, where I was most recently CMO, is based in Barcelona. So I had the opportunity to travel there quite often. And one of the things I love about their culture is how, how a meal to them and many people know this about Spain, is more than just the nutrition and the food. Like, hey, let's eat and run. You know, the American culture is very much like, get this meal over with. We got stuff to do. And it's a three or four hour, you know, experience. But it's but it's not, I mean, the food is amazing. Let's be clear. <laughs> but it's about the connection with the people, rich conversations. And you go into, you know, get to really know people and, and talk about challenges and talk about what's wonderful. And I love that. Right. So, so for me, things that inspire me are, I, I look for things that are um, either experiences I won't have, but I can kind of look at draw from and think how that might, I might change how I act and behave or spend my time. Let's, um, you know, sort of personally, what would I look to look toward? Yeah, I, I very much relate to the slow traveler. I uh, I always like just planting in a place and really exploring the place and being there rather mm-hmm. than being like, we got to hit more. We got to we got to do more countries. I feel like I was like kind yeah. of a drag when I studied abroad because all of my young peers were like, let's go to this country and that country and that country and that country. And yeah, like, yeah. And we- it's interesting. And I, you know, I, I think I mentioned to both of you that, um, between 2014 and 2016, my husband and I took our two kids and we went on a sailing um, trip. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, four people on a 37 foot boat. <laughs> it's just pretty small. So you get to know each other pretty well 24 seven. But 
We traveled the east coast of the United States, which is absolutely beautiful. So from the Chesapeake Bay all the way down to the Keys, in intercoastal waterway, coastal. I mean, those parts of the country are spectacular. And then also spent time in the Bahamas. But we had a chance to really do a lot of slow travel and, and learn about parts of the country that we hadn't spent time in, the people that live there. And um, that was a, a classic example. We'd stay sometimes in some place for two or three weeks at a time to the point now where actually there was this little island in the Bahamas where um, they had a laundromat there. It's woman Ruth. And, and laundry in the Bahamas is hard because there's not a lot of fresh water. So you are on your boat, you get on your little VHF and you're like, anybody doing laundry today? Well, this woman, Ruth, just took a shine to my son who was 10 at the time. And she'd like come in and she'd give him a Coca-Cola and chat with him. And while she would do the laundry for us, you're not allowed to do your own. They still keep in touch, which I just absolutely love. Like, you know, the, the digital world right now is so amazing because you can have those experiences and and now my son who's 17 still chats with Ruth, who's still living on Staniel Key in the Bahamas. And, you know, I and they made he made that connection, you know, and uh it's pretty it's pretty cool. So I'm definitely a slow traveler and you know, meeting people and and keeping those friends for life is a big thing if you can do it. Incredible. So uh, the next segment, we ask the same questions to everyone that comes on the podcast. And they're more about you, okay. less about the marketing <laughs> world. Uh, yeah. But the first one is, uh, what is something that you've done recently for the very first time? Yeah, this is a tricky one. Um, and it makes me think that I need to try new things because I can't think of something off the top of my head. So um, <laughs> Don't, it's, it's okay. what I've done recently <laughs> for the very first time is not nothing. And I need to, you know challenge myself a little bit more and get out of my set and my ways. Um, I mean, we, we obviously paid off my mortgage, which felt really good. Yeah. <laughs> That's huge. That's massive. Yeah. Yeah. That was a big deal. Although we then immediately bought like a second little vacation home. So <laughs> again, there you go. <laughs> addicted to those payments, but yeah, that's probably one thing. Yeah. Nice. Uh, if you were invited to a show until right now, uh, what's one thing that you would bring and why? Uh, I would probably bring, and then we're going to go back to this sailing trip, um, is we, we kept a blog while we were on the trip, which the kids wrote some, I wrote some, and then eventually I realized like digital is so transient. So I actually made books, like downloaded the whole blog, the pictures and everything. And we had this beauty, it's actually two, because it was two years we were gone. So like two, two books. And I love sitting with those and going back and uh, looking through and, um, not because it wasn't all unicorns and rainbows, you know, so I would not share. Everybody probably thinks, oh, you were sailing. It was all Jimmy Buffett days, but it really wasn't. Some days were really hard. We didn't get along. It was hot. Things broke, you know. <laughs> um, so I'd, I'd, tell, I'd probably bring that and, and share the ups and the downs of, of what something like that uh, is like. It's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Thank you. And our last one, uh, if you were to meet yourself at a younger age, what piece of advice do you think you would give? So it's probably um, a little bit of a two-part one here. The first one is um, take even more chances. I'm a, I'm a pretty fearless person who's like, you know, people looking around for volunteers. Like anybody want to move from Connecticut to California for this new experimental customer, you know, connections team? I, I'm in. Like I did that, you know. It's like, okay, never been to San Francisco. I'll move there. Do even more of that, right? Um, because that's what opens doors. And in some ways, I think your career and your life is a process of elimination, uh, of finding what you really like and then sorting out the things you don't want to do. So I'd probably do even more of that. 
Um, but the second thing, which is a little bit converse, is to be more present. You know, I'm definitely a planner at nature. I'm a third, fourth, fifth order thinker. Like, oh, this will happen, then this, then this, which which is a great skill to have, but it also pulls me out of the here and now. And so it's something I'm actually currently working on, um, but I wish I would have started it sooner because you, 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 you sometimes miss the moment you're in because you're so busy thinking about the next moment to come. Uh, so I'd probably spend a little bit more time, um, be, be present, enjoy what you have right now, what's happening right now, and balance that a little bit with the jumping in and, and doing more, more for the future. Yeah, I love that. I have a two-month-old baby, our first. Oh. and. That's yeah, a piece of advice. Thank you. <laughs> oh. That's what everyone says is just pay attention now because it feels like everyone that has kids that I know are like that. Those baby months leave in an instant. Yeah. Advice to myself as a mom would be write it down because you think you're going to remember. You think you're going to be like, oh, I'll have no problem remembering this cute thing my son said when he was three. Uh, no. <laughs> those hard drives get overwritten so i mean just keep a little note little spiral bound notebook doesn't have to be fancy but it's uh yeah i'd write write it down nick i love that yeah (laughs) yeah gary thank you so much this has just been an extraordinary conversation i really had a wonderful time i appreciate you inviting me it's been a fun conversation the time flew by thank you Mackenzie. and I really appreciate it yes thank you so much you're listening to a brand folder podcast where we like to say Strong brands live here. Join us as we build The Brand Collective, a podcast for anyone curious about the people behind the brands that we all love. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. And if you feel inspired, leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Until next time, this has been The Brand Collective.